The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. I've got Jim uh, joining me extra remote uh, today. He can fill us in on where he is if he wants to divulge his location. He's traveling the country, um, settled into a hotel somewhere. I didn't memorize his entire itinerary, so I can't tell you until he comes in where he is. But... Um, he uh, got the technology to work, and seems like the hotel internet's working, and uh, we'll be able to do the show. Of course, the, the microphone and room setup will be a little different, so he'll sound a little different, but uh, the testing we did before the recording here, it all sounded good. So welcome, Jim. Thanks for uh, joining me. Uh, I think I think you're in Dallas, right? I'm in Dallas-Fort Worth. I think Dallas. technically I'm on the Fort Worth side of the line. So Fort Worth, Texas is where I am. Uh, I'm on Third Street, if you want to know that, at a place called the Aloft Hotel. Hmm. Uh, Kind of a millennial-style hotel, so I apologize for the echo in here. Uh, The ceiling is cement. There's cement pillars in the room. Hmm. I think they're trying to be, you know, that not really finished look. Hmm. I guess that millennials like. I don't know. Kind of industrial. Industrial look, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a good way of putting it. That's... Sounds fine. So we'll get through it. We'll make it through. Little, Hopefully, little everything live, sounds sounds okay. Yeah. So, uh, how was your drive? I guess. First well, I didn't drive to to Dallas. I drove to Kentucky, right? <clears throat> or but Cincinnati I've... Airport, which is in northern Kentucky. Hebron, Kentucky, is where uh, the airport's located. So the drive went well. I took three days. I I get bored now more with the drive because I've done it quite a few times mm. and it's starting to just become monotonous rather than exciting. So uh, I drove five hours the first day, eight hours the second, five hours the third. So that's uh, that got me out. It's about an 18 hour drive if you add it all up. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, it went well. And my car's in um, Cincinnati and I, I, it's not like DIA. It's a much, much smaller airport. And the parking garage that I, not garage, but parking lot, that private lot that I 
uh, decided to leave my car at was literally right across the street from the hotel I was at. So mm. it worked out perfectly. Mm-hmm. But when I pulled in, and this never happens, I pull in and you got to show your reservation to the guy at the gate. And then he opens the gate and he lets you in. And he said, park anywhere down row E. And E was literally right in front of where he was. Mm-hmm. And there was a spot right there. Wow. It just never does that happen. I could throw a stone from my car and hit the guy if I wanted. And I, I pull in and um, the bus just appears out of nowhere to take me to the airport. And mm-hmm. it's already full of people. And I hadn't moved everything from my small suitcase that I was living out of into my bigger suitcase. I was going to do it in the parking lot. And all these people are staring at me and I'm feeling rushed and I'm trying to get my sports coats in because uh, I wear generally a sports coat at these events and I'll be going to Philly for a four-day Schwab conference uh, from here. And I'm trying to pack everything. Long story short, I left all my toiletries and meds in my other suitcase, the little suitcase. And I didn't realize until I got to the airport that I didn't have anything. Mm. I do have enough meds to get me through uh, this trip until I get back to the car. And then I'll need the meds that are in the other suitcase. But I had to buy all my toiletries. So I figured, no problem, I'll walk to a Walmart. Well, Mm. there ain't no damn Walmart (laughs) uh, where I am. And I had to go to a CVS in the middle of Fort Worth. And it cost me 46 bucks for all my toiletries. So I'm a little bit smarting over that because uh, that little error cost me $46. Sounds a little high maintenance, Jim, actually. High maintenance? How you got to buy what, your toiletries. You what, need stuff to live You need toothpaste, a toothbrush. Yep. Deodorant. Keep going. Deodorant. Do you want to go around smelling? That's it. What else do you need for a few days? Well, I'll tell you exactly what I bought. Well, I had to get hair gel because I have no body in my hair. Oh, so I don't think of that. I don't, yeah, I haven't used hair gel in 30 years. I needed aftershave for after I shaved. I needed a razor. I needed shaving cream. I needed mouthwash. I'm just looking at everything I bought. So shaving cream, mouthwash, floss, deodorant, aftershave, toothbrush, toothpaste, razor. Uh, it all adds up. Yeah, razor gets expensive. Bucks. Yeah. I don't, I don't razor often enough. I could easily go several days without razoring. So, okay. Yeah. So you are a little higher maintenance than, than my, cause I have no hair, so I don't have to worry about hair product. I can wash my head with bar soap if I need to. Well, you, I didn't need the shampoo. The hotel comes with that, mm-hmm. but that little bit of yeah. hair gel okay. did, did not have any. So I had to buy some. Well, well, at least there was a CVS to take care of you. So there was a CVS that took care of me, but anyways, that's the, it. So uh, I'm out here till uh, Monday. Uh, meeting some podcast listeners, so that's nice. People oh. are introducing themselves to me. Fun. Uh, I'm out here, folks, for what's called the Rock Retirement Club, uh, RRC, I believe is their initials. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of a feisty group of, I don't know how many people are in the, the club, but I've been told that there'll be maybe 150, 200 people at this this event. Hmm. And they asked me to come out and chat a little bit about our approach to retirement planning. So it's nice meeting some podcast listeners. They seem to recognize my voice. So they come up and introduce themselves to me. But uh, it's been fun so far. I've only been here a day. And like I say, I leave on Monday and uh, fly to Massachusetts and then fly to Philly and then fly back to Cincinnati. Then I go hiking in Kentucky for a couple of weeks and then I head home. Fun. You'll have to 
Well, you can keep us up to date as we do these shows about how everything's going. So hopefully they'll keep going good, and I won't keep forgetting everything. Yeah. Well, now you're set. <laughs> least, yeah, I'm set now for at least for a while. You, as long as you don't leave it in the hotel room. So. Um, the bigger question is, were you able to carry all the questions we need for today's show with you all the way to Dallas? I get them because I'm so hip and digital. They're all in my computer. Mm, okay. And no, I still haven't done the separate uh, folders, folders that yeah. that gentleman suggested I do, which I will do one of these days. Okay, let's jump into things because nobody wants to hear anything else about my trip. Um, we got an email this morning. And now I'm trying to find it. So already I'm saying I'm hip with my tech, but I can't find the email now. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, we got an email that apparently, and I forwarded this one to you. So Chris never really gets the benefit. Today he did because I asked him, do you want to address this on today's show? So you have the email, Chris. Why yeah. don't you kind of run today's social security question okay. from the best I can gather folks. Chris did a social security show on Tuesday while I was driving. And I don't know if it generated a question or someone emailed a question that Chris was trying to answer, but I think you need to clarify mm -hmm. this email. Yeah, that sounds good. So to get people up to speed about what this is uh, regarding on the last EDU show, I kind of ran it as a, form of a Q&A show uh, focused on Social Security only. And one of the questions that we had in that I covered that day was a situation. I'll give you the short version. The uh, wife filed before her full retirement age, and I don't remember the exact ages, but uh, at like, say, 64 or something like that. Uh, and that was earlier this year, I believe, uh, in the springtime. And then the, uh, so of course she was only entitled to her own benefit at that time, but her benefit was much lower than her husband's. Later this year, I think it was just recently here, he went into, he filed for his benefit, which then unlocks the door to a spousal benefit. And he received a letter uh, announcing what his spouse's new spousal benefit would be. And so essentially they were f well, forcing upon her the spousal excess or what I've called in the past, the spousal offset, which was my wording for it. And I said in last show that the way that typically works is um, this is uh, a case of what's called deeming where you, when you file for one benefit, you are deemed to be filing for other benefits you might be eligible to receive. And the way the deeming has worked in the past is that if you were entitled to both, so when she filed back this previous spring, if he had already filed, they would in fact have deemed her to file for both her benefit and her spousal benefit all at the same time. She couldn't have filed for just her own benefit. And that's been the case for a long time for those before full retirement age. And then in the, uh, uh, what is it, the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015, um, they extended deeming rules to apply even after your full retirement age. The nuance to their story was that when she filed, he had not yet filed. So she was not eligible for another benefit, the spousal benefit, when she filed for her own. So there was no deeming applied at that point. They don't force you uh, into something that you're not eligible for, obviously. What seems to maybe have changed, and I'm going to read to you the wording from Social Security's website, what seems to maybe have changed, and I'm saying maybe because 
I've heard it working uh, the other way, the way I described in the show last time, which is when he filed, they wouldn't generally automatically force her to claim her spousal benefit. Uh, she would have to proactively ask for it. And that's how I answered the question a few days ago on, on the past EDU show. And let me, so we had a listener uh, email in, and, and this is the email. I'll go ahead and read it so uh, it, it gets right to the point. It says, hi, Chris. Um, I think the first question slash topic you covered on this show discussed when the husband turned on his social security, they soon received a notice of his wife's new benefit now to include spousal excess. Looks to me like this changed as a result of the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015, where now you are deemed to be claiming your spousal benefit when claiming your own benefit. Uh, refer to the following link. So he sent me to a link directly at Social Security. So this is right from the horse's mouth. And let me read you the pertinent part of this page. If you're looking at uh, for it yourself, um, if you Google uh, ssa.gov, and then the title of this page is Filing Rules for Retirement and Spouses Benefits. And it's talking about the changes that applied from the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015. And it gives kind of a before and after. The before is, you know, the rules that apply to people born before January 2nd of 1954, and then for those born after. And it's those that born after that's the important part here. So let me read to you. It's very short. There's just two, three sentences here that get to the heart of the matter. And it says, uh, if you turn 62 on or after January 2nd of 2016, which I'm assuming is the case for this this couple in question, um, and that's where we get the rule if you were born before January 2nd of 1954, because if you were 62 on or after January 2nd of 2016, that gets us back to 1954. So that's just another way of saying when you were not grandfathered into the old rules. So the new rule is, in fact, uh, as follows. It says, for deeming purposes, it says, first, uh, you are deemed to file for both of your benefits, spousal and your own, if, first, you are eligible for benefits both as a retired worker and as a spouse in the first month you want your benefits to begin, then deeming filing applies at age 62 and extends to full retirement age and beyond. And they have that in bold because that's the change. It applies at 62 and extends to full retirement age and beyond. It used to only apply up to full retirement age. So let me, let me emphasize what that just said. It said you're deemed if you're eligible for both a retired worker and a spousal benefit in the first month you want your benefits to begin. So in this case, she wasn't eligible for both, so she wasn't deemed at that point. It wasn't until her husband filed later that she then became eligible for a spousal benefit. But there's an extra sentence here immediately after the statement deemed filing applies at age 62 and extends to full retirement age and beyond. It says, in addition, deemed filing may occur in any month after becoming entitled to retirement benefits. That little somewhat innocent statement might be the key to this issue and what's happening to this person that emailed in to us that I covered on the last show. In the past, when the scenario that they told me uh, happened, Social Security was not picking up on or was not 
interpreting this statement and forcing the spousal benefit upon the spouse until they asked for it. Even though this, the husband, in this case, unlocked the door months later after the wife had filed for her own, the husband later turned on his benefit, making her eligible to receive the spousal benefit. But unless she asked for it in the past, they haven't been turning that on, even after the, the uh, bipartisan Budget Act of 2015. It's a, it appears maybe they have ch- changed their interpretation of this sentence and replaced the word may with shall, and they've got their systems programmed now to pick up on this, and they are forcing that spousal excess to be claimed once the door is opened by, in this case, the husband. So I think think there's you know a possible change a nuanced change in the way social security is applying this i uh hope that the person that sent me that email that i covered a few days ago on the edu show gets back to us and and lets us know what what social security says when they question this um but i think you know the they're, they're usually very particular about the wording and and may and shall are two different things shall would clear this up if it said shall then i would be telling them, you know what, this is just how it works. When he files, she gets forced to claim the spousal excess, even though it's before her full retirement age when she might not want to take it, and that's just the way it is. But the experience is, in the past, this hasn't been happening. So there's they're either better now at picking it up, and they intended to enforce this from day one, or they've changed their interpretation, or maybe this was a mistake and someone forced it upon her and, and it's really a may, not a shall situation. And um, so I'm going to have to admit this is a little, little, a little unclear. You know, possibly, it's possible that in this day and age, my response to the um, the original question from that EDU show was was wrong, and and Social Security is applying it the way it should happen, and forcing her to take the spousal excess as soon as he makes it available to her by filing, even if she didn't really want it at that point. Which, in on one hand, does make it kind of fair and in alignment with someone who files when both benefits are available immediately. Uh, it maybe was considered a loophole for you to file before your husband did. And then when he filed, you know, you, you, you kind of effectively were able to, uh, file what isn't technically allowed a, a restricted application for just your own benefit and not the spousal. And, And maybe the systems just weren't good at picking it up, but they intended to always enforce it strictly like that. Um, I'm not 100% sure now at this point. So um, I'm going to do a little more digging and I'll keep people up to date as I find more information on this. If other people have experienced this and questioned it with Social Security, uh, you know, they were, it was the espousal was shoved down their throat when they didn't really want it. I'd love to hear how that, how that went. Um, but I'm going to reach out to some folks that have direct connections to Social Security and see if I can get a definitive answer on this and why even since 2016, when this went into effect, uh, they weren't really picking up on it. You know, this has been seven years now uh, since that happened. And for much of that time, this this wasn't working like this. Uh, maybe it was just took them a while for the systems to get updated. I don't know. So 
wanted to address this because um, uh, maybe there's a, a, a change, but I'll keep you up to date on what I find. I'm going to do some more digging on this, Jim, and listeners. So lengthy answer, I guess, uh, but I had to keep people up to speed with what we talked about last time if, if uh, they hadn't listened to the last show. So Yeah, you brought me up to speed. I didn't know about this either. Um, interesting that there wasn't more information on this yeah and there's this must not happen to a ton of people because there's just not a lot of obvious questions that have this same exact scenario involved that are answered on the internet by respected authorities i always look to see if maybe somebody else has tackled this and done the research and there's a handful of folks that i trust their answers um one is a guy that um used to work had worked for social security for 30 plus years is technically retired, but spends his time answering questions about social security because he was a technical expert at a high level at social security and knows how, you know, the inner workings of how all this works. I trust him. Uh, there's a couple other advisors that have made social security, their mission, uh, and are really trustworthy. And I, and, and, and there just isn't absolute clarity on, on this, in my opinion, uh, but I'll let, you, I'll let everybody know as I discover more. Okay. How about a <clears throat> Irma question next? Sure. All right. This Irma question came in a while ago, but it's a kind of a two-part. He's got a little part about a Roth uh, conversion question. Uh, we may get to that, but I want to concentrate on his first question, uh, which has to do with Irma. Uh, no hint, no state hint. Uh, I think I jokingly used to say uh, as a hint for this state, it's a state I would not want to live in, but I don't want to upset people who live in that state. Uh, it's New Jersey. But because I just have this vision of Jersey as being, I don't know, dirty and industrial. And it's I, I think you have a wrong. Massachusetts bias in that. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> and they're Jets fans for the The Garden most part, State. But, it's not all industrial. I know. That's the thing. It's called the Garden State. And you figure I would want to move there. Apparently, southern New Jersey is supposed to be very, very pretty, pretty and totally different than northern New Jersey. But anyways, he is from Jersey. So he writes, I am currently 63 and will be turning 64 in June. So obviously, this email came to us quite a while ago, Chris. Mm -hmm. I will start Medicare in June of 2024 next year. I am thinking about downsizing and selling my home, which will cause a capital gain of over 250000 over the 250000 that I can deduct. And it will be added to my income in 2023. Mm -hmm. Let's say that I get $50,000 more and I have to now add that to my income. This will certainly trigger Irma for me in 2025, two years from now. Remember, listeners, he's going to sell his home, he thinks, in 2023. However, I am not understanding something here. Although I understand why Social Security uses the tax return from two years ago to determine if Irma will apply, I am not 65 years old in 2023. I would think that that is not logical or fair. Now, there's his issue. He's applying fairness and, you know, logical 
to government bureaucracies. They don't think that way. But he continues, folks, I would think that is not logical or fair to use my income when I am not even eligible for Medicare to determine what Medicare premium I should pay in 2025. People said they were successful in requesting reconsideration, but I believe selling a house is not one reason for Social Security to approve it. What do you think? I don't know what people were successful, but you can take that on, Chris. Yeah, so as far as the f- fairness thing goes, it it really has nothing to do with age 65. It's it's a practical matter that they're using a tax return from two tax years ago. Uh, here we're approaching the end of the year. Uh, we will get announcements for what the Medicare premiums shall be for 2024 here in about a month, month and a half. By the way, so I don't forget to mention it, yesterday uh, for us, we're recording this on a Friday, the announcement came out on Thursday, October 12th, that the cost of living adjustment for Social Security is 3.2%. So uh, I'm sure everyone's heard of it already because everyone, you know, all that information gets instantly disseminated on social media and all these sources. So, if, But if you haven't heard yet, 3.2% is the official amount. Uh, you know, shortly after this, so in the coming 45 days or so, Medicare will announce what the Part B uh, premiums will be for 2024. And they always send out a letter to people who are going to be eligible for Medicare in 2024, letting them know what their premium will be. And at that time, they have to let them know what their IRMA would be. So the premium for their Medicare, if in fact they trigger IRMA. And here at the end of 2023, the most recent tax return that they have for you to judge this is your tax return that was filed this year in 2023, which was the tax year uh, 2022 that you then filed in somewhere between April, you know, by April or October, if you had an extension. But that's the most recent tax return they have. And so that's what they use to determine the 2024 Irma surcharge, if you have one. So where the where they try to make it fair, like, you know, before you're on Medicare versus you're after you're on Medicare, or maybe it's unfair for them to look back two years, that all comes into what's called a life-changing event, which they try to grant grace or fairness to those who have a change in their life that uh, would be unfair to judge their income from two years ago and uh, apply it to now because there's been a a significant life-changing event that caused uh, a a reduction in their income uh, that would affect IRMA. And you are asking them, if you file the SSA 44 form, you're asking them to instead grant you grace and consider more recent income estimates or, or figures that you might have uh, to to determine their IRMA surcharge. And this uh, listener is correct that selling your house is not a life-changing event that automatically applies. But I would make sure that um, you maybe don't have a life-changing event that might qualify you for some relief. Because he is correct that capital gains um, are part of your... Uh, AGI, all, you know, your your modified adjusted gross income, your MAGI, as I refer to it, for IRMA determination. 
is your AGI from your tax return plus any tax-free interest that you've earned. So everything that would go into AGI, um, you know, the taxable portion of your Social Security, all, all that kind of stuff is... Um, and cap gains, I guess I haven't filled out a tax return with big cap gains on it before. Cap gains are going to go into your AGI, aren't they, Jim? There's no question that they're going to be like reduced somewhere or adjusted. I guess I should have asked a, our tax person uh, for clarity. I just want to make sure I'm not missing something that cap gains would somehow be excluded or 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 roll out you know differently for agi purposes. i don't believe they are but don't yeah. throw a tax question at me yeah. that's why we have yeah, cpas I, who work right so no, i don't, I don't I think there's any way it's going to skirt that and so and and that's you know well i guess i can answer my own question i know that when people sell real estate property that has huge cap gains it, it triggers irma so it must be in your agi without any kind of adjustment so there's no accommodation for you separating that out from your AGI for the Maggie uh, determination for Irma. And so then you kind of have to look for, gee, is there any possibility I have a life-changing event so that I can argue, you know, don't look at my 2023 AGI for making my Irma charge for 2025. Instead, look at my current income situation. And those life-changing events, again, there are um, eight of them. Those life-changing events are you had a marriage or you had a divorce or an annulment, which depending on the list you're looking at, at sometimes they lump those together. So sometimes people say there's seven reasons. Um, um, but anyway, so marriage is one. Divorce or annulment is another. Death of your spouse is a third. Work stoppage is the fourth work reduction the fifth loss of income producing property this does not mean selling your rental property this means losing it uh, you know against your will like in a natural disaster or somebody arson burns it down something like that it's not that you've lost the rental income because you sold the property that is not what they're talking about there uh, the next one is loss of pension income maybe a pension failed you know whatever happened there and last is an employer settlement payment. So if there was an employer settlement that caused your income to spike, they will say, "Man, eh, let's we'll, we'll we'll overlook that and recalculate." So I'm crossing my fingers that maybe one of those things um, ha has happened. I mean, some of those I don't want to have happened for you, obviously, but but maybe there was one of those eight things that happened that would allow you to file SSA 44 and request that they instead of using 2023s. AGI use more recent information that you would then provide to them. So um, the fairness issue, it's, you know, it's just how they had to do something. They have to have some way of measuring your AGI and it only applies, of course, when you go on Medicare, that's the magic thing that causes age 65 to be in play is because that happens to be the age in which you become eligible for Medicare. So um, they weren't trying to punish people necessarily. It's just all kind of wrapped up with how Medicare works and the practical need for tax information to make the IRMA determination. And they have this little look back that you've got. So um, hopefully that helps clarify it. It's not, you know, I didn't give you a magic bullet to get out of the, uh, you know, to ignore the $50,000 possible AGI bump uh, due to the sale of your residence. Um, but, um, uh, that hopefully clarified it. At least so you understand the moving parts.
So, Jim, I think I've done the best I can on clarifying that for him. Was that my cue? That is your cue. Okay. Well, this gentleman also had a question, a part two to that question. I'm going to fire it out there. I, th- I mean, the, the answer, folks, is going to be no, we don't know of anything, but Chris may. Chris does all the planning in the office now. Yours truly doesn't. I don't even know how to open the software, let alone program it anymore. I'm too busy running the firm, which is not nearly as fun as it used to be. I mean, meeting with clients was much more fun, I guess is a better way of saying it, than trying to run the firm. It's a totally different type of fun that I get to have. But he asked an additional question, Chris. I'm going to throw it out there. Maybe you know of something that can help him. I was busy looking at the software that we use, and it does not appear to to be available for individuals. You can buy a license as an individual, but it's two to five thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. May not be worth it for him. Anyways, here's his question: Is there a calculator or software? And maybe a listener out there knows of something that could help this listener. And if you can, fire it off to me. Uh, put put in the subject line, you know, software or software to help or something like that. So I'll know and I'll read it on next week's show. But here's his question. Is there a calculator or software somewhere that I can use to determine whether doing Roth conversions will be beneficial for me? I think I will have opportunities to do Roth conversions from 2025 to 2031. The reason that I don't want to start doing conversions now is because I am being subsidized for my ACA health insurance premiums this year and until the end of May next year. So he's trying to qualify for ACA premium tax credits, folks. Lots of people who work with us do that. It's kind of one of the the, uh, loopholes, if you will, in how ACA premium tax credits are calculated. It's not based on your total assets, your total net worth, like Medicaid is. If you're going to try to get Medicaid help to take care of you as you age and you now need uh, nursing home care or something like that, Medicaid looks at all your assets, not just your income. But if you're going to get help paying premium credits on health insurance pre-age 65, through the Affordable Care Act, or what we call ACA, hence the name ACA Premium Tax Credits. If you're going to try to qualify for ACA Premium Tax Credits, you can have millions, you can have tens of millions of dollars of assets. But if you can manipulate your income for a given year, very, very low income, not too low, where they're going to force you on to Medicaid, but high enough to keep you off of Medicaid, but low enough to give you premium tax credits, you can have the federal government subsidize nearly all, won't be all, but nearly all of your health insurance premiums. And when you get into your 60s, I know because I'm there, my health insurance premiums are a grand a month. So getting any type of help from the feds in this loophole Many, many people do it. I'm surprised they haven't closed that quote-unquote loophole, Chris. They got rid of all these wonderful Social Security claiming strategies that we used to talk about because they said they were loopholes, which made me scratch my head, because they created the rules. Then when people followed the rules, they got pissed and said, no, you shouldn't be following these rules. We created them, but we never wanted you to do them. 
I'm surprised they haven't closed this loophole. So this gentleman, as you'll understand, has assets. He's already telling you he's got a, a house and, and he's got a lot of money. And he's trying to get ACA premium tax credit. So he needs to keep his income low. Even though he's got the assets, he could easily afford health insurance. But the feds are going to pick up a good portion of it. So he doesn't want to do any conversions until he's fully on Medicare uh, at age 65. Then he's no longer eligible for premium tax credits and he wants to start doing conversions. So I just wanted to give a little bit of clarity and background there. And for many of you listening, that should be until they do close this loophole. It should be part of your strategy, especially if you're an early retiree to try to keep your assets, or excuse me, your income down that you report and you will be able to be subsidized in a lot of your, your premiums on health insurance. We have several, several people who are clients of ours who are doing this very strategy. It, there's nothing nefarious about it. The law allows it. I think it flies in the face of the intent that Congress had but right now, it's the way the law is. They simply look at your income, not your assets. And if anybody is pre-65, it kind of, I think, Chris, speaks to the value of not having all of your assets in always taxable IRA 401k style accounts, because if that's where the majority of your money is, you will have no choice but to take dollars out of that account. And as we all know, when dollars exit an IRA or a 401k, it's always taxable to you. That's why as a firm, we call them always taxable assets. Okay, he continues, Chris. I want to determine how much I should convert each year and would it be worth paying IRMA once I start converting? I am currently I am currently taking RMDs from an inherited IRA and the amount each year will only get larger as I get older. I also personally have over a million dollars in an IRA and 401k combined. So when I turn 73 and my RMDs begin, I expect them to be quite large. Therefore, I'm trying to figure out if I should pay taxes now or pay them later. But I really need to see the numbers. So he needs a, what we call in the office a tax plan. And he needs to start looking at all these different measures. What are his RMDs now? He doesn't indicate what his uh, tax ordering number will be. Uh, 2100210. He did inherit an IRA. Let's assume he inherited it from a spouse and he's a single person. Does he have someone that he wants to try to leave money to, a human? Does he want to optimize the, the human? In other words, the zero, the inheritance over him? Because inheriting a Roth is going to be tremendously better than inheriting a traditional IRA. But is he single, no children, and he's only going to leave his money to charity? Then Roth conversions become a little bit more questionable, but you would still want to crunch some numbers to see if he has an inherited IRA with RMDs, if he has an IRA and a 401k combined in his own name greater than a million, 
Will his RMDs be high enough in the future that he is always going to be subject to IRMA? So should he voluntarily do some conversions earlier once the ACA credits are done in another year and a half? Should he start doing some conversions voluntarily in an effort to get his IRMA in the future lower? In other words, pay higher IRMA for a year or two or three in an effort to have lower IRMA for the rest of his life? These are all the variables this man is trying to to calculate. Where does IRMA fit in? Where do RMDs fit in? I would encourage him to also look at inheritances. What's going to happen when people inherit his wealth that seems to be tied up in very large IRA as well? We do have software that we use. I don't know of anything at the retail level, Chris, that can help him do this. Do you? I am not aware of anything. The only thing I've seen is people kind of writing either individually or sometimes as a as as a group effort, um, like on the Bogleheads forum and and things like that, which are you know communities of uh, of folks doing their own financial planning that try to to um, you know crowdsource, if you will, some tools. But that's the that's the challenge with this is think about all the, the the factors involved. Jim touched on those. We've got both state and federal taxes to be considering. You mentioned he's in New Jersey, which is a high tax state. If he's thinking of moving in the future, that would impact this decision. Um, you, you know, you mentioned Irma, also the taxability of Social Security. There's people focus on the income tax rate, and 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 they should. Uh, that's an important piece of deciding, gee, should I recognize income now at a certain income tax rate or or later at, the, am I going to be at the same tax rate or a different one? And that can be the, the beginning of the discussion. But then you have to look at all the side effects, all these these effectively, you know, additional tax side effects, if you will, if it drags more of your social security into the taxability column, if you, if it triggers Irma up into higher brackets, if it does this, you know, same kind of push up into other brackets in, at the state level. Uh, I mean, I can go on and on and on, you know, it's, it's, uh, it would be a very complicated do it yourself spreadsheet to be able to do this justice. And so I, I wouldn't, you know, it, it might get you close, but I wouldn't really trust a spreadsheet unless you built it yourself and you know what you're doing, that it's going to take all these things into consideration to help you decide. And and some of it will have to be your decision as far as what you're prioritizing, what Jim alluded to or, or mentioned with the uh, the 210 concept that we use. If dollars, um, uh, you know, he's, he's single, obviously, because he mentioned a $250,000 personal residence uh, exclusion. Um, so if you're single, um, not leaving stuff to a spouse, if you're going to be end up leaving money to a charity, then you certainly wouldn't want to convert any of that money because they're going to end up with it tax-free anyway, uh, which then opens the door to, if you are charitably inclined, QCDs are going to factor in to this whole tax story too, qualified charitable distributions. So I'll, I'll stop talking about it because I, you know, you just keep thinking about more and more and more complexities to this overall question. And luckily, um, you know, ten years ago there wasn't much, even at the professional level, to do this analysis justice. In the past ten years, there's been several software packages made available to professional planners and advisors like ourselves that does pretty much tackle all of these variables. 
not, not necessarily every single one. We still sometimes have to do some manual tweaking here or there, but they're pretty powerful tools. But I don't think any of these really good, powerful tools are available to an individual. Uh, like you said, Jim. So I, I'm not aware of any. I'd love to hear. We have a pretty big audience of do-it-yourselfers. And if people have run across uh, some service, I can't imagine it would be free. Because, I mean, this this is a complicated thing to put together. If somebody put it together, it would be worth a lot. And I can't imagine they would just hand it out for free. But maybe there is some kind of do-it-yourselfer-focused tool out there that people have found where you could pay a small subscription fee or a small one-time fee to do some of this on your own. And it would look at all these variables. Um, but I, One thing I will add, being out here for the Rock Retirement Club, uh-huh. I believe as a member of the club, they have access to it's either eMoney or Money Guide, which those are the two big, uh, in our industry, folks, uh, mm-hmm. eMoney, Money Guide Pro, and Right Capital are the three big uh, companies in our industry. I believe eMoney is the biggest, owned by Fidelity. Money Guide is second, and someone just recently bought Money Guide. I forget who, but somebody owns them. I now. think with a Rock Retirement subscription, you get a Money Guide Pro. Uh, is it Money Guide? Okay. I think. And someone, some bigger company just bought Money Guide. Right Capital is still independently owned. But My point is, none of those have the tax calculation right. capacity that this person needs uh, at all. Right. It does not have uh, there are software. It has some basic stuff in it, but it doesn't yeah, have, have basic, the sophistication have to the look at all this stuff. To, yeah, to do a lot of this, you might be able to finagle the programming and get it set. The only reason I mention that, listener, is uh, you could always. And this is not a shout out because they have me out here to, to speak with them tomorrow. Um, you, you join their group and you get access to Money Guide. And I, I just don't think Money Guide has the tax calculation capabilities that a truly dedicated software program that just looks at taxes. That, that's why we have two separate programs. We don't use eMoney, Money Guide, or Right Capital. We, we use a different program entirely for our approach uh, to retirement planning. So we, I'm looking at the Money Guide Pro website right now. It is, or I'm sorry, the Rock Retirement website now. You do get what's called Money Guide Elite something, another tool called Guided Agile Retirement Management, um, which I'm not quite sure what that tool is. The RISA thing from from Wade Fow, the RISA survey, your retirement income style awareness, R-I-S-A. Um, Everplans, which is a legacy planning software and another tool. So uh, Money Guide um, is... Um, it's not Money Guide Pro because that's the one for for pros, <laughs> but a Money Guide version that you can get that you could do some stuff in there. Um, and and yeah, yeah, my point that I wanted to make, and this software may help mm-hmm. listener. Of course, you'll have to join the Rock Retirement Club to get access to it. But it's one thing to have software; it's another thing to know what the software is saying, why it's saying it. People who just believe blindly in software and don't dig into it to make sure things are being looked at correctly, uh, set themselves up for issues. And it's one thing, again, to use a software program. It's another thing to have years of knowledge and experience to try to interpret it. So this certainly is not a shout out to saying maybe you should just hire someone. But a lot can be said for hiring a firm that specializes in that. They're going to use software too, as we do. 
but we've been doing this for a very long time and we have uh, professional CPAs on staff available to look over and we do all our planning as a group. And we oftentimes, even in the software that we use for tax projections, the software may say this is the, the, the chosen one. This is out of all the scenarios we evaluated, this is the one that we feel your client should use. And we have overruled that software more times than not. Well, I don't, maybe not every single time, but enough time that it's noticeable in my mind. I never counted, so I'm hesitant to say how many times we don't choose the number one because we are looking at other elements and other parts of this person's life that the software doesn't even let us input in. And had the software known about this, that, and the other thing, it probably too would have changed its opinion. But it doesn't have the inputs to put this, that, and the other thing in. Mm -hmm. It's kind of dogmatic in its approach, very narrow focused. You put in a certain amount of information, but it doesn't know a lot of other things. And when we take all of that into account, we're like, okay, yeah, that's fine. But we think item six here is better. And we're going to do a little bit from item six and a little bit from item three. And that's our recommendation. I'm, I'm speaking broadly and you don't quite understand what I'm describing, but I think conceptually you get the picture. It's one thing to go out and try to find a software program. It's another thing to be able to interpret what's going on behind the scene. That's all I want to add uh, yeah. to that. So I don't want to bemoan it. I think it was a pretty good question. Maybe it'll get some listeners out there to say, hey, Jim, but there is a program out there. Uh, we use this or this, this guy wrote a spreadsheet. And if you pay him some money, he'll send it to you or whatever. Um, if anybody knows of anything, I will let this listener know. Okay. Sounds good. And you might, uh, you might ask around a little bit while you're out there. Sure. Mm -hmm. I'll tell people to listen to the show. And if they have any answers, <laughs> get hold of me. Okay. Okay, I want to address an email for the new email of the week. We actually have two new emails of the week. One is more of a, a question, not a question, a comment. The heck is it? There it is. Okay, so do you remember last week? I just want to address this briefly because he wrote quite a long email. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But do you remember last week we got the email from, from a listener who was wondering, because she had a single premium immediate annuity with New York Life that had that unique liquidity feature in year 5, 10, and 15, mm -hmm. where she could access 30% of the remaining uh, balance of, of her contribution as a lump sum withdrawal. Right. Remember that question? I, I do vaguely. I don't remember every detail of it, but I remember yeah. us talking about that. Yeah. So we had a listener last week, folks. Y'all probably remember she had an IRA annuity with New York Life. The IRA annuity was a single premium immediate annuity. Longtime listeners will know we call them SPIAs for short, single premium immediate annuity. And they are the simplest form of annuities out there. They're pure. They're simple. They're easy to understand. She gave a hunk of money to New York Life. I can't remember off the top of my head how much. She gave a chunk of money to New York Life. They, in turn, have agreed to pay her an income stream for the rest of her life. Even if she receives all of her money back, and if she lives long enough, she will, they will continue paying her for the rest of her life. When I went out to dinner last night with some of the members of uh, the Rock Retirement Club, the, the founding members, uh, one of them, Kevin, who's been on this show in the past, you've interviewed Kevin, I think, a few times, Chris, 
uh, he uh, has a got a grandmother, I think, or an aunt. I believe it's an aunt or a grandmother who is 106 years old. He was showing us pictures of, of her. And she still lives independently in assisted living, but in her own little independent apartment at 106. Wow. And he was just remarking, imagine if she bought a single premium immediate annuity. She, we were talking about this at dinner. Yeah. Winner, winner, so chicken point, dinner on that one. Yeah. Talk about a bottomless cup of coffee. That coffee just keeps coming. That's why I call a single premium immediate annuity the bottomless cup of coffee. So anyways, the point that this listener had made last week was she gave this chunk of money to New York Life. She's going to receive income for the rest of her life. She's not questioning the validity of that decision. She doesn't think she made the wrong decision. She apparently likes the income. She did the calculation. But she just started thinking recently, wow, interest rates are rising. And since annuity payments are a mixture of a return of my own principal, the money I put in, interest that I'm going to receive on that money for the rest of my life, and mortality credits or the benefit of risk pooling, which is what mortality credits are. There's hundreds of thousands of people in that New York life annuity pool. Their actuaries know exactly, and they can come eerily close to how many people will die each year. They just don't know which ones. And you don't have to know which one. They just need to know about how many. So they can calculate with software, I'm sure, but very powerful software actuarially, how many people will never receive all of their money back. So the income payments that you receive include some of the people's money that are going to die. It's rolled right into it. It's called mortality credits. It's amazing how they calculate it. They review this constantly. They study actuarial tables and morbidity and mortality tables. And they, they do all of that. And they build that right into your income stream. But she was thinking, wow, I can take 30% out. I had to explain to her, go listen to last week's question. I don't want to get into the answer. doesn't quite work the way she thought. But anyways, she thought, should I take some of that money out? And do you think I will be allowed to move it to another IRA where I can buy a new annuity and benefit from higher interest rates? I told her there's no clear answer on if she's going to be able to take that distribution and put it in an IRA because it is considered an RMD of that IRA and RMDs cannot be rolled over, which is what she was looking to do. Take an RMD from one IRA and tax-free move it to another. You cannot do that. But we did make mention that Secure 2 kind of muddied the waters on that. And I'm hesitant to tell her for certain if she can or can't. And the IRS hopefully will provide guidance on this issue. Listen to last week's question. You'll get the background on it. So this guy wrote, and he kind of disputed, well, not disputed, just says, hey, why didn't you ever mention this? And I'm paraphrasing his email, folks. He said, why doesn't she take the distribution from the IRA 
and not even try, excuse me, take the distribution from the SPIA, which is an IRA. It's an IRA SPIA. Take that distribution, the 30% from it, and just pay the taxes on it. Now you have after-tax dollars. And he said, then go buy a single premium immediate annuity with after-tax dollars. And he said the payments from that single premium immediate annuity will be more tax favorable than the payments from an IRA, single premium immediate annuity. So I wanted to address that because the man is right to a degree. So what he was saying is rather than this listener in 2025 trying to figure out if she can move the money into an IRA or not without having to pay taxes. And again, I'm hoping within two years we have guidance on that. But even if she can't take the 30 percent. Then buy another annuity outside of an IRA. Granted, you'll have to pay taxes on it. So there'll be less money going in. And that, to me, is an issue. But he's saying, even though there's going to be less money, because she's going to take 30% out, pay taxes on it, and whatever's left, put it in a single premium immediate annuity outside of an IRA. Because he rightly pointed out, and we've mentioned this many a times on the show, that when you have what is called a non-qualified annuity that has been annuitized and is paying you income for the rest of your life, the payments are subject to what is known as the exclusion ratio. And the insurance company must figure out the exclusion ratio. Not you, all you Vanguard VGs. You ain't going to be able to figure it out yourself, even if you write the most impressive spreadsheet in the world and you dispute to high heaven what the insurance company is telling you. What you feel the exclusion ratio is does not matter. The law is explicit. The insurance company figures it out and they will tell you out of your payment how much is a return of your own money, which is not taxable, which is what this guy was referencing. How much is interest, which is taxable and how much is mortality credits, which is taxable. So his point was he felt that putting the money in a non IRA might be better for her. I'm here to say I have no idea. I have no idea which is going to be the best thing she should do in a couple of years. And she doesn't. But I wanted to address his email to share with people a little bit of nuances here. That an annuity inside an IRA is always going to be taxable. Unless it's a Roth IRA, then it's always tax-free. An annuity purchased with non-IRA money, regular bank or brokerage money, will be subject to the exclusion ratio. But one thing he did not point out to me in his email that I will point out to him, the favorable tax treatment, because he says, Chris, in 2025, taxes will be going higher the very next year, January 1st of 2026. So he's saying if she kept the money in the IRA, it's going to be subject to even higher taxes. Maybe she should take it out and have a more favorable tax treatment to it with taxes going up. What he's not pointing out is what, Chris, with the exclusion ratio and the fact that your income, your return of principal is not taxable. What happens eventually? Eventually, once they have determined they've paid you all of your money back, your principal or the basis, as in other words, 
the entire annuity payment becomes taxable at that point. So there's an exclusion ratio out to uh, expected mortality, and then it all becomes taxable. Exactly. So the tax benefit of a non-qualified annuity goes away once you receive all your principal. And I don't know how quickly that happens. It depends what the exclusion ratio is, but most exclusion ratios are around 70, 80%. So it doesn't take a long time for all your money to have been returned. And then the entire distribution is taxable. And you're right back in where you, what this guy is trying to avoid, which is the entire distribution from her SPIA, if owned in an IRA, will be taxable. Yeah, but I so, think a, an analysis could be done. This is not really an unsolvable problem. It would take some looking at it um, because it is likely that the dollar-for-dollar dollar payout of an annuity, a SPIA now versus when she bought it, is higher so getting the money out of the current SPIA and moving to another, which I think was the essence of his, you know, his suggestion. Hey, you know, you know, maybe she, there's other ways she could accomplish this and that might be beneficial to her to, to get that money out and, and buy a new SPIA at current rates, uh, which, which have higher payouts than those of a couple of years ago when interest rates were lower. Uh, and this is a way she could do it without trying to keep it inside of the IRA itself. Could it potentially work out? Yes, it could. And that's, I'm, I'm on your side too. You know, this might work. This might make sense. This might not. You'd have to take all these factors into consideration to, to decide if, if that And one thing to keep not. in mind in this calculation, which should not be done for another two years, but for all you guys out there who's starting to write spreadsheets to figure this out for your own annuities, if you have this liquidity feature, her income will also be cut on her existing annuity if she does it. And she's going to have to get a strong understanding from New York Life how much of a cut will she take. And the 30% that she's going to receive is not 30% of her original deposit. It's 30% of her original deposit minus any money that she's already received. So if she put, say, 500000 in, but she already received 100000 I'm making these numbers up. It's 30% of 400000 If if 100000 of her principal has been returned, not mortality credits or interest, but her money. So she would have to look at a small 30% of a smaller dollar amount minus taxes inside to a new annuity. And what is that going to generate? And subtract from that how much her income is going to drop from her original IRA annuity. There's a lot of moving parts here. And my point to her was, it's probably not going to be even worth it. Just keep what you got. And I stand by that. And that was this listener's point. You shouldn't have said that. You should have gave her these other options. So there's your other options, listener and listeners. The reason I shared this is I want people to understand exclusion ratio and how that all works with a non-qualified or annuity not inside uh, an IRA. He then asks one question, and it's good, we'll keep going. Another question, same listener, but a different question. He's saying, hey, I got so caught up, he said, in addressing your answer to the Q&A, I forgot to ask my question. He said, can a distribution from a SPIA, and he put in parentheses, Chris, your favorite annuity, or a QLAC, that is held inside a qualified IRA, 
Now, a QLAC is always inside an IRA. QLAC Qualified Longevity Annuity Contract, a special deferred annuity that can be held inside an IRA. You can only get a QLAC in an IRA. His point is this, though, folks. Both the SPIA and Chris's favorite annuity, a QLAC, both of those are a, a irrevocable annuitization decision. It's when you took a noun, annuity, and did an action, a verb, annuitization, and you turn an account balance into an income stream. That's irrevocable. And even though the QLAC doesn't pay you until later, it's still irrevocable. He's asking, though, if that's inside an IRA, could I ask the insurance company to direct all or a portion of that payment to a charity and call it a QCD? And he said, I've had mixed results researching this. Some say the IRS allows it. Others say it doesn't explicitly forbid it, but doesn't explicitly allow it. And that it's a great area. What is your understanding? My understanding is it can be done. But the insurance company, you're going to have a hard time finding an insurance company to do it. Mm -hmm. For them to break a payment up and send a portion of it to a charity in a check written out to the charity. Insurance companies are this bureaucratic bungle. You think I'm bad, folks, with technology and I'm not hip? You should see an insurance company. We recently opened a SPIA for someone. We had to use a paper app. Well, a PDF app that actually had to be filled in and physically signed by the client. And then we had to put the signature pages back into the PDF and send it to the insurance company. And when I asked them, how come we can't do this electronically? You know what their answer was, Chris? I don't know if I told you about this this client in the office. Did they admit it's because they're trying to discourage you from selling those products? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Spias are so rarely used, they never updated their software system to allow electronic Spia applications. That is sad. That's more of a reflection of my industry. I hate my industry. I was talking to a couple of these Rock Retirement Club members yesterday uh, in the evening when I came, I came in with a Starbucks in the evening and everyone was wondering how I could eat a, a drink of a coffee uh, at 9.30. But it's decaf, so I like it. Anyways, I was chatting with them about how I hate the industry. And, and our industry uh, hates single premium media annuities. And they keep bad-mouthing them. Uh, in, in my opinion, unfairly, because they can't make any money off of managing assets if you buy a single premium immediate annuity. They will say, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not being honest or, or that's BS. They, they absolutely don't care about that. No way. They don't want to see 200, 300, 400, $500,000 going out from their 1% annual fee 
and buy a single premium immediate annuity. They're instead going to say, oh, you can end up with more money if you let me manage it and, and do a withdrawal and then you can die with it and leave it to someone or whatever the case may be, fully not paying attention to the fact that you are going to be aging, you are going to be losing your ability to understand financial concepts, and a single premium immediate annuity is a wonderful way for the older you to just get a steady, bottomless cup of coffee, paycheck, and not have to worry anything about what the economy is doing. Geopolit- Talk about geopolitical risks, folks, lately. Have you been watching the news for the past week? What's happening now in the Middle East? And could that blow up, no pun intended, into something bigger? Just... Why expose your retirement to that when you are not going to be able to understand or even care about financial concepts as you age? I know you all find that hard to believe now. That's why you're listening to this podcast. You all geek out on this and you want to do it. But even yours truly, and I told some people last night uh, in the hallway when we were chatting in the, in the, the hall, whatever you call it when you walk into a hotel. What is that? The, the, the lobby. The foyer? Hall? Lobby. Lobby. Thank you. Mm-hmm. When we were chatting in the lobby last night, that I will end up when I retire buying the mother of all annuities because I have a very small Social Security benefit, no pension. And I've shared on previous shows why that happened to me. And part of the reason is, is if I stay with Rachel for the rest of my life, even though she's a wonderful woman and a very good nurse, she is clueless on finances and investing. And I will not leave her my assets because chances are I will die first. She's 10 years younger than me. And you all know my health is, is I'm healthy. No, I'm fit, but I'm not healthy. And I may pass away before her. And if I do, I want to make sure everything is automatic for this woman. And she's not going to have to try at age 75, 80, 85, trying to to manage money and wondering what's going on. And single premium media annuities are overlooked for all of those additional benefits, that bottomless cup of coffee. My dad, I've shared again, is 89 years old. He didn't have an annuity, but he has Social Security. The guy is clueless on investing. And he taught me math when I was growing up. He didn't know anything about what I do, how I do it. And it's it's a good thing that he doesn't have any assets at this point in his life. But what he does know is the third Wednesday of every month is when his Social Security arrives. He knows that. He knows his Social Security comes in. It just appears. It's like he says, it's magic. That's where we're all going at some point in our lives. Okay, with that in mind, it ties into this question we got from another gentleman. He says, Dear Jim and Chris, I know you have heard this issue before, and I know you have addressed it, but I do think it requires more of your guidance and advice for us folks. How do we set it up so that the correct decision can be made on purchasing and choosing an annuity later in life? If one is to wait until they are into their 70s or beyond to make the decision, in other words, the older you, they may be in a time frame of financial cognitive decline. 
So what could be a strategy or a process that the younger you should put in place now to make sure the annuity can be purchased in the future? And I thought that was a good segue from Mm -hmm. where this other question was and where this one is going. Chris and I believe passionately in covering your minimum dignity floor of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses with the bottomless cup of coffee guaranteed lifetime income. That does not mean annuity. It means first optimizing and maximizing your social security, which to Chris and I is still the single best annuity I got news for you. All you annuity haters, Social Security is an annuity. It is the single best annuity you can get or buy. And how do you buy Social Security? By delaying it. You delay it, you're going to spend your own money. That's the buying. You're going to take from your own portfolio the return, 8% more a year of guaranteed lifetime inflation-adjusted income. So when you delay Social Security, you are essentially, folks, for all you annuity haters, you're buying an annuity. You really stop and think about it. So we believe first in optimizing Social Security. We believe second in optimizing a pension if you're lucky enough to have one. But the third element, the income annuity, We're hesitant to tell people to run out and buy one. Now, right away, people have overruled us. People we work with have overruled us and purchased one sooner than we feel they should have. But it made them feel good and we're fine with it. So we call it in our office during the delay period between retirement and when your social security is optimized and turned on, because it has an end date, if there is a need for food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care, well, if there is a need during that delay period, I apologize, folks, for covering those expenses. But because there's an end date, Chris can easily determine how much money you need to put aside with an end date to cover these rather fixed expenses with inflation adjustments. So that's easy. Once Social Security turns on, it's surprising, Chris, when you show them what? what gen- Not all the time, but what generally happens when you show people the delay period ends, your optimized Social Security turns on, and boom, look what happens to your minimum dignity floor, folks. What do you generally show them? We usually see that initially the Social Security does a good job of covering what we call your minimum dignity floor. If it doesn't cover it completely, it's darn close in in many, many cases, which is kind of uh, surprising to people because, um, you know, there's so much bad mouthing of Social Security and its benefits <laughs> that uh, uh, as long as you have a decent size, you know, some people have smaller versus larger, but but that that scale of it kind of coincides with the size of your minimum dignity floor, too, because your earnings over your life is what generates the size of your social security and earnings over your life determines your standard of living, the expensive, you know, how expensive your house is and how big it is and those things which all contribute to, um, you know, the expenses within your minimum dignity floor. So 
does a pretty good job as um, as long as there's you know if it's a couple that they both have some uh, social security either as a uh, each their own or or a one with a nice sized one which then grants the spouse a, a decent sized spousal benefit uh, as well that's it's very very common for that to happen but for for many people the social security alone won't keep up with our projections for covering the minimum dignity floor because of the inflation assumption differential that we apply, assuming that the minimum dignity floor expenses are going to inflate faster than cost of living adjustments are applied to Social Security, which we believe to be a reasonable assumption for the future. But, you know, everyone can draw their own conclusions for that. And that's what he's talking about is this crossover point Mm -hmm. where later in life the Social Security is projected to not keep pace. And I'll point out before you go further – Maybe it will. I'm hoping it will, right? Maybe it will. And this is one of the excuses for delaying the the implementation of this additional secure income is if things work out well, maybe the Social Security handles it for quite some time, if not forever. Exactly. So we're hesitant because, as I said earlier in this show, it's an irrevocable decision when you buy a single premium immediate annuity. So when this crossover point is expected to begin, we generally in the office see between 78 and 83. However, that's not etched in stone. I tell everyone it's molded in jello. And that jello is sitting out on the windowsill. So it likely is going to change. And that's the issue. We don't know if it'll be 75, 78, 82, 83, 84, 85, never We just have a feeling it's going to happen. Retirement planning, folks, if you haven't figured this out yet, hopefully you will shortly, it's not a set it and forget it endeavor. I know you guys are all do-it-yourselfers, but honestly, sooner or later, you will have to hire someone to help. And if not you, then your spouse, who may not be as into it as you are, will have to. Don't leave it to your spouse to try to figure out who to hire and what to do. I think sooner or later, you have to say, I need some help. And you're going to have to get it. And it's happening to me, not financially, physically. I am hiring help to work around my yard to do things that I've always done myself. People who know me know I love to be outside. That's why Mosby, my, my best friend dog, go to my website, the bottom of the website, the little picture of a dog. It's what we call an Easter egg. Uh, you can actually click it and read a story about Mosby. He and I just connected beyond belief. I'll never have a relationship with an animal like I had with him, I don't think, ever again. But that dog loved to be outside. When I had to put him down, I did it outside. And he walked outside with me to his death. It was so sad. I was bawling my eyes out because he would have hated for this to happen inside the vet office. I'm not saying I want to die outside, but my point is, actually, I don't know where I'm going with this point because I got on the subject of Mosby. What does being outside have to do with what I'm getting at? Well, you're going you're gonna to need help. Right. Ah, thank help. you. 
I love to be, thank you. Wow, talk about getting on Mosby. I was getting teary-eyed on Mosby. I'm sorry, folks. I love that dog. Oh, God, do I miss him. I love to be outside, and that's why I have a little bit of acreage. That's why I lived on acreage when I first moved to Colorado. I still live on acreage, and I love taking care of it. I've got a wood splitter. I've got my ATV. I've got all sorts of equipment, man toys, uh, my friends call them. If you go into my barn where I had my stroke, it's full of man toys, wood splitters, chainsaws, DR field and brush mower, regular mower, everything. I had all sorts of man toys. I love it. I can't do it anymore, folks. I've got back issues. I get tired. My time is tighter. And I'm starting to realize, I think I need to pay people to come do this. And I have not in the past two years done my own fall cleanup and spring cleanup. I used to do it myself with blowers and and a big leaf vacuum that sucked it up and ground them small. And then I would use those leaves in my garden and I don't do it anymore myself. And there will become a time in your life where you won't be able to do your finances yourself. You may be able to do other things. I don't know. Some of you may give up on it sooner than others. There'll be a time in my life where I will not be doing my finances. I'm going to use this firm. This firm is not going anywhere when Chris and I retire there will be younger generations taking over and running this firm and continuing with our vision and philosophy and approach. They will be managing my retirement. I jokingly tell Jacob all the time, he will be my advisor. I think he thinks I'm joking, but assuming nothing happens to him and he stays with us, he most likely will be my advisor. And we're going to all need help. And this is what this man is asking. What's going to happen in the future if I can't make that decision? To me, and you please add in, Chris, your own thoughts, because this is where the art takes over from the science of financial planning. Everything is going to be different for everyone. You may not need, sadly, If you can't be the one making the decision that, hey, I'm 83, there's this crossover point, I need an annuity. If you can't make a cognitive decision at that point, you probably don't need the annuity anymore. You might need the value of that money that was going to go into the annuity instead be using it for assisted living or some other expense or maybe a withdrawal from that reserve rather than buying a lifetime annuity that ends at your death. Your death probably isn't that far off, actuarially speaking. And those assets no need to, no longer need to be annuitized. And you can just be withdrawing or whoever is assisting you is withdrawing from those assets. That's why I'm saying if you have a planner or a planning firm, and this isn't a shout out to us, but if you have someone there that understands the strategy and what's going on, they can work with your agent under the power of attorney. Maybe they have already met the agent. We meet a lot of the agents of our clients' power of attorneys. Now, not physically meet, but we chat with them. I'm talking to one right now uh, in Ohio who's helping a Colorado client. So 
having a firm or an individual who is helping you with your finances doesn't have access to them. Someone who's helping you with them and maybe monitoring the people who do have access to your assets and making sure that the assets coming out match the plan that was put in place. Well, gee, it was never in the plan to spend $400,000 on a home improvement. Maybe they can raise the red flag and say, well, what's going on here? That wasn't part of the original plan. So it's there is no, in my opinion, easy way of addressing it. You can give specific instructions. You can work with a firm. You could have a family member who has an idea. Now, and much younger family member, please, not your brother who's two years older than you. They might be in the same situation. Can you think of anything? I mean, we've addressed this before. I I, I hate my answer always being the same thing. Have a firm that understands what's going on. But can you think of anything else, Chris? He makes a valid point. But my thought is, if you're at that phase, you probably don't need guaranteed lifetime income. And that's part of the reason Chris and I want to wait. Just put the money aside. Pull it out of your portfolio, the see-through portfolio concept. Take that money out. It's off limits. But don't buy it until you're certain you're going to need it. What are your thoughts? I, I see what you're saying by if, if you've really lost that ability. But we have to always circle back to a lot of times people don't realize that they have lost that cognitive ability. And they uh, may not be picked up. Maybe maybe they don't have a lot of family that's close. It could be all kinds of reasons why you might find yourself in a position of of you know not recalling or not being able to pull it off when it's when it's time. Um, I think the do it yourselfers out there that are kind of managing their own situation and want to do that for the foreseeable future, uh, clearly written instructions about your intentions with the idea that not only these written instructions good for someone else who might help you, maybe a family member, but for yourself, for yourself to remind you, you know, what was the deal here? Oh yeah, that's what I was going to do here. I guess I need to, you know, talk it through with somebody or, or, or think about it again. Should I be doing this at this time? That was my intention for setting aside this money. Does that seem to make sense now? And, but, but it's, you know, it's hard because it's, it's almost like deciding when, you know, Many times people don't know they should give up the keys to their car when their driving is deteriorated. Someone else has to notice it and say something and convince them. Some people are self-aware enough and they, they do proactively, but many, many people would keep doing that when they clearly are not equipped to do you know operate a vehicle safely. And so it's, it's a tough situation uh, you know with your finances as well, but I, I, I compare it to that you know, do I, am I fully equipped enough to, to, uh, responsibly have the keys to this vehicle, um, is the same question of, do I have the keys to my own financial situation uh, as well? So I don't think there's an easy thing here. I think written instructions, open discussions with those who care about you or that you're going to have provide professional advice now or in the future, uh, is important. Keeping more people on, on the same page, even if making sure you're you remain on the right page um, that's going to help in this situation. But there's not, I don't think there's a perfect solution to this if you're not engaged with a professional helper in this regard. So 
Um, I know everybody's not everybody's interested in doing that, or maybe could afford to do that. But that is probably the most obvious. But there, I think there's other ways you could mitigate it a little bit. So yeah, I wish there, there there is no there's no honest solution. I think this is really going to be left up to each individual mm-hmm. of of what you can do to make sure that your wishes are carried out and don't overlook uh, an attorney with an estate plan mm-hmm. with very specific uh, instructions in that estate plan uh, as well that might be able to be used. And you're just going to have to figure out what is best for you, yeah. uh, sadly. And eventually I do feel everyone is going to need some type of help. And I'm going to encourage independent help than a family member. More money is stolen. This gets a little bit beyond this gentleman's question. But more money is stolen from elderly people through a power of attorney form than at the barrel of a gun. Uh, I've always heard that saying, and it's not my saying, but it's true. And the, the point is, few elderly people are held up and mugged. Sadly, it happens to everybody. And there are people who are mugged and, and held up and they're elderly or they're young. But more money is stolen from elderly people through fraud, deceit, and power of attorneys. If somebody is stepping in under a power of an attorney, it's because you can't make a legal decision for yourself anymore. So you're not even going to know someone's stealing from you. And sadly, and I'm sure there's listeners out there who've had this happen, we have family members are stealing from a parent. And other family members don't even know until it's too late. So having a independent firm, and you're not going to find a CPA or an attorney who's going to do this because that's not their business model. But finding a financial firm that at least has an idea of what your plan is and what your approach is. And you don't have to, there's firms out there that will not charge you an AUM fee. Look for them. But having some type of firm overlooking and knowing what the scenario is supposed to be, what the strategy, not scenario, I'm sorry, the strategy for your retirement is supposed to be and how you're going to approach it and what your normal spending has been for years, if not decade or two, that, wow, this is the normal spending. Now, all of a sudden, the son has a POA as an agent. Look at this huge spending that's coming. Maybe they can ask the son, gee, we noticed large distributions coming out. Is is everything okay? Do we need to reposition the portfolio if they're managing it for you? Or do we need to redo the analysis? Are these expenses going to continue? They can ask certain leading questions to try to get from the person with the POA what's happening. What is this money being used for? And maybe there's nothing nefarious at all. Oh, I'm sorry. I should have told you. Mom is now in assisted living and it's costing $15,000 a month. We put her in a really nice uh, facility. And yes, the facility is going to, we're going to need this $150,000 a year. uh, Absolutely. Maybe there's nothing going on. Or maybe the person is rude to the financial advisory company, not answering questions, being very um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, Chris? Being very uh, belligerent, being not being forthcoming. 
Uh, belligerent, that's a good one. Maybe the company that's helping you notices that and they bring it to the attention of another family member or the authorities. Financial services companies have been allowed now, and in fact, I believe we're required um, to report if we feel fraud is being committed against an at-risk person, which an elderly person is considered at risk. And we have been given protections, but we can at least contact elderly services in your community or the sheriff's department or police department in your community and their elderly crime uh, unit and just say, hey, we're not quite sure. Here's the issue. We've been helping these people for eight years. They've always spent this much money. Recently, this person stepped in under a power of attorney and we're noticing uh, $800,000 has been removed from their $3 million account. And we're not getting a clear answer on why and what's going on. We're trying to adjust the client's plan because at these spending rates, we feel the assets aren't going to last. And this was never part of the strategy. At least they could lay it out to the, the individual, whether it's a detective or, or a social worker, and let them hopefully investigate it further. It's just one thing to consider that sooner or later, you might need that type of assistance, that type of oversight. And it's that company or oversight that might be able to talk with the agent who may not be doing anything nefarious and saying, hey, yeah, originally he was going to buy an income annuity with it. But based on the fact that he has this, that and the other thing and his life expectancy is only four more years or less, we don't feel you should buy that annuity. Instead, use this money here. It was specifically earmarked for this phase of his life. And this is the money that should be used to support him. And it should be moved very conservatively, yada, yada, yada. So that's my thought. I know it sounds like a big shout out to, to my industry. It's not. Be very careful. I hate most of my industry. But there are firms out there that are trying to do and offer this type of service. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to bemoan this this yeah. horse anymore or beat this horse to death anymore. But I think a couple of good questions on today's show. Yeah. Uh, hopefully people found it uh, beneficial. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining me. Um, good luck with your uh, what you're doing there at the Rock Retirement Club meeting. And we'll look forward to hearing all about it next time you and I get together. Yeah, I will yeah. be available on Tuesday from Massachusetts. I'll be at mom's house. Nice. So I nice. will broadcast uh, live from mom's house. Maybe I'll get her on the show. I doubt she'll want to come on the show. <laughs> Maybe I can entice her, at least come on and get say, say hi. Okay. Well, sounds good. Well, safe travels. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have your own questions, uh, you can send them in directly to Jim. Uh, Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. That's jimhelps.com. Make sure you put in the subject line that is a question for the podcast. And uh, we'll do our best to bring you a brand new show next week. So talk to everybody later. Okay. Bye-bye. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning 
They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 